Welcome to Behind the Schemes, a conversation about protecting our planet's precious wildlife from commerce, corruption, and counterfeit cures. This is Risha with Behind the Schemes, and in this episode, we're talking about tackling corruption in the Congo with Naftali Honig from Project for the Application of Law for Fauna. Can you tell us about Project for the Application of Law for Fauna, which you call PALF? Yep. So we're based in Republic of Congo, and we've got our our headquarters in Brazzaville, in the capital. And um, basically, the project is based on... um, uh, it's a replication of Laga, which is a, a, uh, not just a, a project, but it's a model that was set up in Cameroon um, in the early 2000s. And then, and then in the late 2000s, started getting replicated in other countries in Central Africa. Um, and now uh, since 2012 in West Africa as well. So PALF, in Con- PALF is specific to Congo then, and, uh, but the model is common. And the model consists of basically five major units. So there's the management, which is just kind of, you know, putting it all together. But then we have an investigations department, operations, media, and legal. And so basically, the investigations are doing, um, are, are kind of doing undercover investigations and looking into different types of wildlife criminality uh, across Congo, some of it's cross border, of course. Um, and we're talking about, you know, ivory, and leopard skins and things like that. Um, and then the operations is, is then the project collaborates then with the Congolese authorities in our host ministry, which is like the Ministry of Forest Economy and Sustainable Development, but also with police forces, like the police or the gendarmerie. And then, those, um, and then with those police forces, then uh, we basically organize sting operations to arrest these, these wildlife dealers. Um, and then the, the legal aspect is then what makes our model very unique is that we, we, f- we basically babysit these cases from the investigation all the way through to the sentence and even beyond. So like just right now, for instance, I've got some cases where the legal team is following up, you know, just after the, the arrest. Um, others are cases that are still in court. So, you know, we're going to each tr- hearing and, you know, Trying to um, trying to make the trial as strong as possible for protecting wildlife by working with the lawyers and working with our our ministry of wildlife and um, and then you and then we have cases where someone has already been sentenced. For example, we recently got this this sentence for five years, um, and so we can't just kind of assume that everything is going to go well. Uh, if we want this person to really serve five years in de- in jail, then we have to actually visit him all the time and make sure he's still there. So just the other day, um, you know, already, uh, already we're, we're confirming to make sure he's still in jail. Um, and then the media aspect is basically just um, getting the word out there and not just getting the word out there about wildlife law, but getting the word out there that it's actually being applied. So in Congo, that means, you know, getting, uh, uh, reporting on trials, reporting on sentences so that these heavy prison sentences don't just dissuade traffickers, but dissuade would-be traffickers as well. So that's basically the general kind of uh, model of the project. And um, yeah, so we've been working in Congo since 2008. 
And, um, and yeah, we were able to get uh, some good results. You know, at, at first, the sentences were kind of small, you know, in like five in a year. But then, you know, by 2011, we were getting like 20 something. And then 2012, getting more than 30, getting 36. And this year, we've, we've already got some sentences. Uh, and, um, and, you know, hopefully, um, some of these big cases that have just come up will, will result in some new sentences. Just recently with this big five-year sentence, there were three people sentenced in one day. So, you know, that's hopefully contributing to something in that region. And, uh, and we, we, our project works across the whole country. So we, we're trying to really get that in, in every region of the country. That's excellent. And that is a lot different, I think, than what the other organizations are doing, what you said, the babysitting of the cases. When you first started, how did the uh, lawyers and uh, attorneys for these uh, wildlife traffickers, how did they accept you? Has it always been a good working relationship? Yeah, I mean, we've had good and uh, we've had ups and downs for sure. I mean, there's been, there's early cases. I mean, things, you know, we had to learn along the way. There was a lot that we had to pick up along the way. Early cases made it uh, very apparent, something that we already knew from the Laga experience in Cameroon, but uh, it became very quickly apparent that we we're up against a lot of corruption and, and on all sorts of different levels. So basically, um, you know, early cases we would have, uh, weird things happen, like maybe we would get uh, a sentence for an ivory trafficker, but it would be very, very weak, you know, or suspended sentences where they never actually go to jail, you know, almost symbolic fines or fines that would be very high, but no one would ever pay them. So, uh, you know, so, you know, it might have looked okay on paper, but in reality, it wasn't actually making any big traffickers, um, uh, stop what they were doing. But what it was doing, it was getting some kind of getting some oil on the motor a little bit, so to speak, and just starting to like, uh, get the whole justice system, the whole mechanism a little bit more habituated to actually processing these cases more strictly. And little by little, it started to change. And little by little, we started to realize how we can, we can block the corruption in different places and, you know, where it exists and what we need to do to fight it. Um, and that way we could, we could actually get some more decent results. And then, you know, we had some major breakthroughs, like, uh, there was one day, for example, in 2011, where, uh, something like 11 or 12 traffickers and poachers, uh, were sentenced in a single day, not little poachers. We're talking about guys that hunt with assault rifles and stuff like that. And traffickers that are on an international scale trafficking ivory. And um, a number of these traffickers, seven of them were even transferred to a higher security prison in Brazzaville, even though the sentence happened in Nueso, uh in the north of the country. And, you know, those seven, you know, went to jail for real. And they, they were, you know, they were getting, and, and four of them out of those seven, four of them were actually echo guards. So the, the, the park rangers that are supposed to be protecting wildlife. And so we really saw to what extent the corruption was, was pervasive. One of them in in uh, in his interrogation, he even implied, kind of, in so many words, saying that you know, a fish begins to rot by its head. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. 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 Now, what's it like when your team shows up in a courtroom, so to speak? Do the judges do they they know who you guys are? They know you guys are keeping an eye on what's going on. 
Sure, they definitely know. Um, we don't we don't communicate really with the judges because we uh, we 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 respect the the independence of the judiciary as much as possible. Um, and uh, but we but of course the prosecutors know who we are. Our the lawyers that we're working with, of course, they know who we are. The ministry people, of course, they know who we are. We're working with them every day to um, to follow these cases because it's in their interest. Um, officially speaking. The victim is the is the ministry in charge of wildlife, so you know they can seek damages as well. So and that's happened in the past. For example, in January 2011, um, there was a Chinese citizen arrested for trafficking quite a lot of ivory, sculpted ivory and raw tusks, uh, out of Brazzaville uh, by the airport by Maya Maya International Airport. And that guy was sentenced then in August, and um, in addition to a prison sentence, he got handed down a huge fine, um, well, fines and damages. So it ended up being something like um, $9.1 million safe, which is like, it's over $18,000. Excellent. And how long was his sentence? His sentence was four years. He served some of that sentence, and then as a good example of corruption— Somehow he was able to get out of the country. He was able to get his passport back, apparently, and escape. So he served about a month, which was not a pleasant month for him, I'm sure. Um, well, that's in the, good. <laughs> in the jail. Uh, and he definitely did pay that fine because we actually you know, followed up on that and found out that that was actually paid. But, um, but so, you know, there's, we're, st- I mean, we're still looking for him. I mean, if he comes back to Congo, sure, uh, he should be arrested and he should serve that sentence. The remain the remainder of it rather, and um, uh, but yeah, I mean, so those are the things. Like, so okay, you know, we had some success. We got we got some of the way there, but not all the way. And now we need to get all the way there. And uh, you know, in, when we have big dealers arrested, we just need to be really, really vigilant and make sure that you know, once they're sentenced, that it's it's for real. Oh, absolutely. I think that is a great deterrent, um, what you were saying about getting the fines and just getting off or um, getting suspended and walking away. Unfortunately, I see um, a lot of that in wildlife trafficking. And the fact that um, you guys are able to do that in a a region uh, like the Congo is really amazing. Um, Earlier, you said that there was corruption at um, all levels. Um, Can you maybe describe... um, the corruption chain for us, where it starts and how high up it goes and, and maybe some of the, uh, unexpected places where there might be corruption. Sure. Um, basically it can, like I said, it can be on all levels and that cannot just be, so all levels means that it can, it can be hand in hand with the crime itself, or it can be hand in hand with the process of ruining the court case or ruining the, the justice system rather. So that, of course, can happen from, you know, the, the lev- right from the level of the arrest. I mean, as soon as arrests happen, I mean, sometimes in a matter of literally minutes, you can have family members showing up at the, at the, um, the police station ready to bribe with money in hand, um, already making phone calls, trying to peddle influence. We use this expression trafficking influence a lot here because we, we find people might not even need money. They might just need influence to be able to corrupt uh, the system. And then, of course, money is obviously something that's going to help that along. 
Uh, sometimes it's money that happens right now. Like it can be an exchange of money that's immediate. Sometimes it can be just kind of an understood thing that the money might come later or something like that. But um, basically, uh, basically, I mean, when, when an operation happens, we only want to see legal phone calls happening. We want to see, you know, um, police informing the prosecutor immediately of the, of the case and, and trying to get the, the court immediately involved. Um, you know, those, those are great things to see when that happens. That sometimes we know that someone's not corrupt when we see them following the procedures right off the bat. Basically, as soon as, as soon as, um, as the case, as soon as the arrest happens within, within a minute, uh, within a few minutes, you can have families there that are ready to, um, that are ready to bribe with money in their hands. Um, and it's, it, we talk a lot about traffic of influence here in Congo because, you know, it might not take money, but it might just be a question of, you know, making a phone call to someone powerful who might call down the chain a bit and wonder, you know, and, and start asking questions like, oh, why is so-and-so arrested or why is my family member being arrested and putting pressure on people? Um, so, so traffic of influence is a serious problem. Bribery is a serious problem. So the only kind of phone calls we really want to see are the ones that are promoting uh, the judicial process. Like, for example, when police are calling up, um, calling up the prosecutor just to, to, to work better, you know, to work on the, the case and to get the, the justice involved in the case immediately. So that's, uh, so that's really important. And when we don't see those kind of phone calls and we see that the police is maybe more willing to, like, receive the family and, and talk with the people trying to bribe the, the, them, I mean, at that point, we start to get a bit nervous. Now, when these people are caught, you're talking about trafficking influence. Um, are they uh, wealthy or is it just that they're well-known, well-connected with politicians or just a little bit of all of it? Yeah, I mean, it could be it could be any combination. I mean, really, anything you can imagine, we've seen it. Um, so I just described, you know, the the arrest, you know, but then it, the same thing goes through up in higher levels. So in the court, you know, the same thing as I just described with bribery or traffic of influence, all that can happen. But the stakes have been raised a little bit because there the procedure has gone a little bit further. So. Um, but then we start to see other things coming about, like, for example, fake medical excuses or bribery concealed as bail money. So maybe, you know, someone in the court system might say that it's a bail money, but then, you know, you might lose track of where the money goes. There might be no trace of it at all. Um, and uh, the medical excuses is very hard to deal with because someone might have a legitimate medical problem. But then at the same time, we see all we've seen many, many times cases where the medical excuse was an excuse to get into a hospital that would be easier to escape from. So people will just escape. Uh, and we've seen that on like many levels from, from, from poachers to, to big traffickers um, and using whatever tactics all the way through the court system by the time they're sentenced. Then even, you know, once they've been sentenced to prison, you know, anything can happen. I mean, some manage to get out before their sentence is finished. Um, we've seen kind of all sorts of different tactics. People might get transferred to lower security prisons. Uh, they might just kind of um, wait it out a, a little bit longer until they think we're no longer watching and then try and bribe their way out. So it gets, uh, it gets really, really hard to follow. And then coming back to, to what we said originally, that's just kind of interfering in the judicial process. But, but then there's that 
participation corruption, where someone might be using their authority to actually participate in wildlife trade. And we've seen that, you know, when it comes to illegal bushmeat trade, we've seen that when it comes to illegal ivory trade, from anything from kind of politically supporting traffickers or, um, or going against national policy, you know, or uh, to actually trafficking ivory. We've seen uh, situations where, where, um, where government officials were actually trafficking ivory in the government vehicle. You know, that's when it gets, that's really the worst of the worst there. But, um, but, um, but that happens from time to time. And it's really, it's, we're getting to this point where we can actually get cases brought about against um, trafficker, uh, po- big, big poachers, the big traffickers, but we're still having, you know, trouble pushing it to get sentences for authorities that are being corrupt. And those, and the law is actually quite clear about that. The law says that the maximum penalty should be given to a, um, you know, an agent of the state who is, who is found to be, to be doing, uh, this type of wildlife crime, big, big traffic of, of protected species. So, uh, you know, it's really a question of, of how, of time for us. We want to push for this to get through as fast as possible because it's the law. It's the national law. Yeah, and you guys are not out there inventing new laws. All you're doing is making sure that the laws that exist are being properly enforced, correct? Exactly. Um, I mean, we might, you know, we might try and help out with, with other stuff. Uh, uh, we try and get involved even on the CITES level as well. But, um, but we don't, uh, but we, but we're mostly working on the ground here. We're working on existing laws. There's a, there's a law from 2008, which is pretty much the, the wildlife code. And then there's a law, there's a, a, um, an order from 2011, which basically specifies which species are going to be integrally protected in Congo, which is the highest protection status. Um, you know, Poaching them or trafficking them is punishable by up to five years in prison in Congo, um, and uh, so yeah, so those those species are kind of the the key species for us that we're trying to to protect here. And what are the most frequently trafficked species where you are? So I mean, for us, the big the 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 most pressing concerning issue at this point is probably ivory so forest elephants are the, are the most here here in congo we have forest elephants um so we're really really worried about the ivory trade and of course with that then you have other smaller trades like um elephant meat and elephant tails and stuff like that but really this ivory trade is driving so much of the the killing uh so that's really the most pressing issue for us but then there's also you know, um, a trade in live great apes. There's also a uh, great ape bushmeat trade. There's a, a leopard skin trade. And, um, so that's, that's really concerning because they're, um, you know, it's, it's rare to see leopards in Congo. Um, but they're, and, but their skins are still actively traded here, unfortunately. And, um, and then illegal bushmeat trade. So, I mean, the most trafficked species, I mean, in a technical sense, there's some species that are, that are quite common, but illegally trafficked because they might, under kind of certain small, smaller stipulations under the law, they might, uh, they might be the trap. And some of that unregulated bushmeat trade is, is really, really big. 
like you know there there are times when you uh, there are seizures that we help bring about that uh you know involve hundreds and hundreds of kilos of bush meat in in, in single vehicle for instance hmm. now recently we were talking about the ivory trafficker who went away for five years um affectionately known as pepito what were some of the problems that he was causing and how long had you guys been following that case before he finally went to jail uh, last week I think it was yeah so he okay so basically we were basically investigating this case for about a year investigating a lot of different people around him um, and it was in collabor and we were working with African Parks who was basically uh, who was yeah in the management um, of uh, of Odzala Kokwa National Park, um, which is our biggest national park in northern Congo, and so basically uh, with them we were kind of just investigating around this. We were investigating poachers and um, traffickers that are kind of working in Pepito's network, and so that was about a year of like you know really researching this. But um, people out there have been have known about him for. Time. Um, and then finally, African Parks was able to arrest this guy in April of this year, so in April of 2013. And then he went to, um, he went to court. Uh, I mean, there was just there was so much testimony against him at this point that uh, it it basically was just getting really heavy. And there was there were many people in his network that had already been sentenced. And then he was uh, so he was arrested in April. He was held while on trial, and then. Um, Finally, finally, just a few days ago, on the 15th of July, he was sentenced to five years, which is, uh, as I mentioned, the maximum sentence to prison for for ivory traffic. Um, He was also kind of, he was also affiliated in this ivory trafficking network. Uh, He was organizing the hunting of the elephants as well, and the hunting was done with uh, what in Congo is is called a a weapon of war. Um, So it's mostly Kalashnikovs. So, you know, basically when, when people are organizing this, it involves trafficking the, the munitions and the arms as well. So, uh, so, he, that, so that's, that's a kind of an aggravating circumstance when you're, when you're, when you're looking at, at how to prosecute these, these guys. And in addition to his prison sentence, he got hit with a $4 million SAFA fine and a $7 million SAFA um, uh, damages payment that he needs to, to pay up. So that $11 million SAFA, that's about $22,000. So, you know, he'll have a, a huge fine on his, on, his, on his back right now and then uh, and this five-year prison sentence. And you said that your team has gone over to check the prison to make sure that he is actually behind bars and hasn't wiggled his way out so to speak absolutely so he was sentenced on the 15th the 17th i think uh, two days later i think it was he was transferred to brazzaville prison from avo the the smaller city where he was sentenced um which doesn't have a prison so he was transferred to brazzaville and uh yeah and we visit him there and we'll continue to do so because we we uh we've seen other you know great sentences where people serve part of the sentence, but then manage to get out um, not that long afterwards, or sometimes they do more than a year or two years or whatever it is, and then and then they get out. So uh, we want to really we want to really make people realize that 
that ivory ivory trade is just totally illegal. It's just not tolerated. We're on a really a zero tolerance for this. Elephants um, elephants are integrally protected, so they're they have the highest protection status in the Congo. Uh, I mean, all of Africa is is getting hit by this huge demand for ivory at this point. Central Africa is getting hit really, really hard, as um, as recent data has shown. Different studies, different you know, um, research has shown that that Central Africa is losing huge amounts of elephants. Yeah, it's absolutely devastating, and it's shocking. I just don't know why somebody would want something carved out of ivory. It's just it's sickening. It just seems uh, it's kind of morbid, you know. It just. Ugh. <laughs> shocking I've even seen I've seen some things where um, it's really sad that like the ivory might even end up in Buddhist temples and and I've heard some things that some people believe that that uh, maybe the you know the elephant dies and then gives its ivory or something Ugh. like that you know to, to man or something but if they if those people really believe that that they're just kind of you know dying an old, old age and giving their ivory to people uh, if they could only see the reality, I mean, when, when you see an elephant in the forest with its face hacked off because somebody wanted to rip out its tusks as fast as possible, it's horrible. And I've had the unfortunate experience of seeing big tusks, but even tiny little tusks. So these people are ripping them off the faces of infant elephants, really. Maybe not even a, a, a pound or two of ivory. I mean, it's it's really horrible. Just the ba the baby elephants, just anything they can get their hands on. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's massacres of of uh, whole families, you know. So I might just mow down a, a a group of. I mean, sometimes you know, forest elephants travel in small small groups or or sometimes alone. So sometimes. sometimes People actually come and buy the clearings where they, where forests um, have a lot of their social activity. So there might be, you know, many of them, maybe dozens or even more than a hundred. Some, some of the larger buys in Central Africa, and people sometimes just come in there and and uh, you know, pair them up. Ugh, it's uh, it's just despicable. It's there's just you know there's just almost no words for it. I mean it it's just horrifying. But good for you guys for being out there and uh, bringing these people to justice. We're trying to work on the on the um on the traffic end, and then you have a lot of uh, different groups that are working on individual protected areas. So. Um, those will generally be working more on the the poaching side, and but then also getting the traffickers on the we're working on the traffic side more, and helping those projects out. So we're following some of their cases as well. But then we have cases that are very urban, like for example this big dealer that just went on trial the other day in Brazzaville, um, uh, and he is yeah just yesterday in fact, and he. Uh, those those dealers are are totally urban, so they're um they're they're controlling people like Pepito that are out in forested areas and um and getting ivory brought to Brazzaville. So there's no projects near protected areas that are that are going after these really really high level ivory dealers. So they're they've just been kind of living in this state of impunity in the cities. So 
um, yeah, we've, we've had a few cases like that, um, this year of these kind of higher scale urban traffickers, uh, for ivory and for, um, yeah, um, I'm trying to think, I think it was the end of last year actually, but, um, a case where we actually managed to get, uh, bring about the arrest of the captain and the, and, and the, the controller of a boat and the trafficker of a chimp. So it was a live, a case with a live chimp, for instance, but, but there was a, so not only did we get the trafficker, but we get the people that assist as well. So, I mean, that's kind of just another example of trying to expand and, and make sure that we, we, we get everybody who's, who's participating in, in illegal trade. Yeah. And the urban trafficker. Now that's somebody who is, like you said, obviously living, living in a city and just controlling things from, say, a neighborhood, just looking and acting like a regular person in town, but actually has this very sinister business. Is that what that means? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. So what do you think it is that makes PALF more effective than a lot of other NGOs? In itself, we're just a, a project, so we're, we're part of kind of NGOs. But, I mean, ourselves, we're just kind of simpler, um, smaller. That's, that's, that's pretty big. That's pretty important for us is to stay small so that we don't have, like, big administrative costs and stuff like that. Uh, so we can get more done on a small budget. Um, and also our objective is very simple. Um, you know, so we can, we can just basically see what we're doing. We can, uh, we can look at, uh, whether we can try and find different measures of how, uh, traffickers are being, being, um, sentenced. So we can try and see, are we, are we looking at small traffickers? Are we looking at big traffickers? And we can basically just, uh, easily measure how much prison time they're getting. And our objective is very simple. It's just to, to get people into jail and to keep them there as long as possible when, uh, when they're trafficking, when they're illegally trafficking in wildlife. So, I mean, we just kind of, we just, we don't claim to kind of save the world, but we have a very simple goal. We want to get wildlife traffickers into jail because we think that it will, it will kind of scare off other wildlife traffickers. Definitely. I, I think it's a great model and um, really appreciate what you're doing. Um, what can people do to help PALF? What can people do to help you guys out? In the U.S., we've got the Conservation Act. So that's something I think that's really important is that people get active um, and write letters to, to their, their state representatives and, um, and get really get really a lot of energy into that so that so that those budgets don't get cut um in the US a lot of budgets are being cut now but um it would be really really great if we can keep that ideal of trying to help the rest of the world also protect its wildlife so you know those conservation acts like the the sea turtle the sea turtle conservation act or tigers rhinos elephants um it's great that as americans we can we can contribute to not only the protection of our own species but protection of endangered species around the world. So I think that's really important. And another thing, but there's a million different ways that people can help out. They can they can come out um, and volunteer. I mean, we we're always looking for for super you know really strong activist oriented volunteers that are that are trying to um, 
that may, if especially if people have experience in Africa, uh, if they have experience in investigations or journalism, we're always looking for that type of stuff. And um, especially, for example, right now, if we can, we're, we're really looking because there's so much demand coming from Asia. We're really looking for for uh, volunteers that speak Mandarin because there's a lot of sensitization that needs to be done as well. Um, so kind of bridging between Africa and Asia, um, people that, that speak Mandarin can definitely get in, can definitely get in touch with us by going to our website because bridging that gap between Africa and Asia is really, really important. Um, some NGOs have already realized that definitely our network, uh, we, want to, we want to do the same thing and, and make sure that we're not uh, falling behind on that. It's really important to bridge that gap. It's really important that we start um, that we start working with with um, with people that with activists that can speak Mandarin and can and can can be passionate about about this cause. Are you seeing an increase in uh, Asian citizens in Congo? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, coming back from CITES, uh, I remember getting on the plane. Uh, there's a big hub in, in Addis Ababa and getting on the plane in Addis and coming back to Brazzaville, um, my section of the plane was definitely the majority of the people in my section were um, of Asian origin. And so you can really, you can really tell that there's just uh, a lot more um, Asian presence, mostly Chinese presence in Africa. And that's helping Africa with a lot of infrastructure development and stuff like that. But it's it's also becoming a serious issue when it comes to to the protection of wildlife because you know in our investigations we've 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 seen situations of where you have um, Chinese people buying bush meat illegally buying leopard skins illegally ivory illegally so and and a lot of this trade becomes international of course because because it's head, headed back home for them so. It's a huge concern of ours. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just one quick question. Now, you're American, but there you are in Congo. How did that happen? Slowly but steadily, I came, uh, I, did, I did a bunch of traveling and kind of slowly ended up in Africa and um, lived in, in Kenya for a bit and then lived in, the, in the, the rainforest in the southwest of Congo and, and volunteered a little bit. And then eventually I was uh, running a... a camp, a research camp there, uh, doing post-release monitoring for, for chimpanzees. And so that was really an amazing experience. And I stayed there for a while and really got to fall in love with the rainforest here. And, and so it was a pretty easy next step for me to, to want to do more and to get onto the, get onto these serious poaching issues. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Naf, for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. And it was great to talk to you again. And it was great meeting you in Bangkok earlier this year, too. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Tackling Corruption in the Congo with Naftali Honig from Project for the Application of Law for Fauna. This is Risha with Behind the Schemes.